I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to read the first 30 verses in preparation for our study this morning. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And great multitudes gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole multitude was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell upon the rocky places, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil." But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables." Because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. As in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Thus is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. 
And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, <coughs> and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some 100-fold, some 60, and some 30. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. And that's where we'll stop this morning. <clears throat> it's been some time since we heard a message preached from the Gospels. And so today, we're going to put aside our ongoing study in the Proverbs. We're going to put it on hold, and we're going to turn our attention to our Lord's parables for a time. A large portion of our Lord's public preaching consisted of parables. They occupy a prominent place in the three synoptic Gospels, that is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That word synoptic means to be seen together. Technically, no parables are found in John's Gospel, unless we include Jesus' analogy about the Good Shepherd and the sheep. The greatest concentration of parables is found in Matthew's Gospel. Parables did not first appear in Jesus' teaching. We meet parables in the Old Testament in the form of Proverbs and prophecies, and in allegories and similes, things that are compared and contrasted with one another. Perhaps one of the more well-known Old Testament parables is the prophet Nathan's story, you remember it, about the rich man who took his poor neighbor's ewe lamb to feed his visiting guest. Nathan used this story to illustrate David's sin with Bathsheba. Ezekiel contains a number of parables to illustrate God's dealings with his people Israel. In fact, parables are scattered throughout the Old Testament. So the parables that Jesus is preaching, that form is not entirely uh, unknown to God's people. Now, I suggest to you that everyone loves a good story. And I, I would say that if I began my sermon this way this morning, I said, well, once upon a time, I would have all of your ears. Good stories may not just be 
interesting, but also instructive. The best stories are instructive. And after telling some story, we may conclude with the expression, well, the moral of the story is thus and such. Jesus, by his <clears throat> richly visual parables, capitalizes on the truth that every picture tells a story. An ancient Arabic proverb states <clears throat> that he is the best teacher who turns men's ears into eyes. Jesus was a master teacher in part because he was a master storyteller. He intended by his parables for men to see with their ears. Parables entertain while they instruct. There is always a moral to Jesus' stories. Now instead of jumping, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> instead of jumping right into an exposition of the parables, I believe that we will better understand and appreciate them by considering some basic introductory principles that will help us to understand the what and the why and the how of Christ's parables. Today we're going to ask and answer three questions. Well, we're going to ask two and answer them. The third one will wait until next time. We're going to ask the question, what are parables? Secondly, how do we rightly term, uh, interpret parables? And next time, Lord willing, why did Jesus preach in parables? In other words, what is their purpose? Well, what are parables? Well, parables, as I suggested, make up a significant portion of our Lord's public ministry. And depending upon our, our method of counting, his preaching included around 40 parables. And that very emphasis urges us to give them our careful attention. We should learn how to identify parables when we encounter them in our private and our family Bible reading. And then we must exercise special care in our interpretation of the parables. In fact, failure here may lead us into error. But as we learn to interpret parables correctly, they will instruct us and they will enrich us with the gems of truth that they contain. What are parables? Well, first of all, let us consider the definition of parables. The Greek word for parable literally means to, to throw alongside. Parables have been defined as short, simple stories designed to communicate a spiritual truth or a moral lesson by using examples or making comparisons from everyday life. Jesus, as it were, throws spiritual truth alongside natural things in order for the, the natural to be an, a bridge to understanding the spiritual. Parables teach us truths that we do not know by comparing them with things that we do know. Jesus often introduces parables with the words, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. And we just saw that. 
The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son or to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves or to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Jesus also spoke what we might call many parables, not many, but many, very brief parables. One example would be his likening of the hearts of false teachers to trees that produce bad fruit. And this he follows with the parable of the two builders, in which he contrasts a wise man who acts upon what he hears, and contrasts that with a man who doesn't act upon what he hears. One man builds upon the rock, and the other one builds upon the sand. Another mini parable would be Jesus' comparison of fickle Pharisees to flighty children playing in the marketplace. Simple comparisons really are mini parables. Perhaps the simplest definition of parables is that they are earthly stories that contain a heavenly meaning. In many of Jesus' parables, he uses the common things of this life to illustrate the great issues of eternity. He clothes spiritual realities with the garb of, of everyday life. He explains the unknown in, in terms of the known to try to bridge the gap between our ignorance and knowledge. Notice, secondly, the difference in parables. Now, I'm not talking about differences between one parable and another, but the differences between parables and between them and myths and fables and fairy tales. We would be wrong to think of Jesus' parables as some kind of biblical counterpart to Aesop's fables. As Mr. Trench tells us, quote, the parable is constructed to set forth spiritual truth while, fa while the fable is essentially of the earth and never lifts itself above the earth. The fable just reaches that pitch of morality which the world will understand and approve, end of quote. Jesus' purpose in parables is to confront us with divine and spiritual realities. People of the world may find Jesus' parables interesting from a literary standpoint, but they are unable to appreciate their spiritual message and apply their eternal implications. And Paul suggests this truth when he writes what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. But a natural man, that is a non-Christian, someone who does not possess the Spirit of God. He's not, a, he's not a believer. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. That's why the preaching of the gospel is foolishness to unconverted men until God opens their eyes. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. He can understand natural things, but he can't understand spiritual things. Like Nicodemus, when Jesus told him about being born again, Nicodemus thought in very crass, literal terms, how can I crawl back into my mother's womb and then be born a second time? And Jesus was talking about a birth that he needed, 
He needed to see the kingdom of God, and without that birth, he would never see it. Without that birth, we will never see it. The Word, even the glorious gospel, will be a dead letter to us until we receive the life-giving Spirit of God that will open our eyes to see the kingdom of God. Furthermore, parables are unlike fables. Fables which often mock men and make fun of their calamities. Jesus' parables, on the other hand, address sin and its evil impact upon men with deep sobriety. Also unlike fables, parables contain no subtle deception. Jesus never attributes reason and language to beasts and trees. His parables contain nothing fantastic or far-fetched like walking trees and talking animals. Jesus' parables reveal our Lord's severe reverence for the truth. His parables are not jokes. He never plays loose and fast with men's never-dying souls. He intends by His parables to bring men to face their true condition so that they might hear the voice of God in them. The moral taught in a fable may be able to make men better, but they're never able to make them Christians, never able to make them fit for heaven. Parables also differ from the myths of popular folklore. Myths contain, or excuse me, explain reality in terms of what is fictional. According to ancient Greek and Roman mythology, the events of this world are controlled by the whim of fabulous gods and goddesses. Not so with Jesus' parables. He never borrowed from current myths or fabricated fanciful stories to teach about God and His kingdom. He uses parables to teach spiritual and eternal truth from ordinary and commonplace things. Their power and beauty lies in their ability to communicate truth, not with fancy, but with facts. Jesus never used make-believe to teach things that we must believe. So we've seen the definition of parables and the difference in parables between myths and man's stories, fables. Notice, thirdly, the details of the parables. Every parable has parts or elements that must be rightly interpreted if we are going to understand the meaning and thrust of the parable. All parables contain three constituent parts. First of all, the setting of Christ's parables is some well-known activity or event, relationship or custom. We read parables about farming, about marriage, of kings and feasts and household relations, of business arrangements and such things as that. Things known to those that he spoke these parables. See, this is the earthly aspect of a parable. A parable's backdrop supplies the meaning of each element in the parable. A parable's use of the concrete and ordinary makes it such an outstanding teaching tool. 
When Jesus gave the parable of the sower, he may have pointed to a hillside in which a man was out sowing seed. Secondly, the earthly elements in Christ's parables resemble elements of spiritual truth. You see, it's this clear association or analogy between the material and the spiritual that gives a parable its power to illustrate spiritual realities. Jesus says the seed, the seed is the word of God in the parable of the sower. Finally, parables teach spiritual or theological truth. The analogy between the material and spiritual provides the foundation for a parable's main lesson and subservient lessons. For instance, there is more to the parable of the prodigal son than simply a touching story about a misguided young man who wises up after paying dearly for his foolish decisions. If this is all we see, we miss the point of the parable. Parables are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. Jesus gave them not merely to entertain, but to educate, to edify, to lead us from sin to salvation. So that briefly is an answer to what are parables. We saw their definition, their difference, and their details. Notice secondly, how do we rightly interpret parables? We should be thankful that we're not left entirely to our own resources in interpreting Jesus' parables. More than once, our Lord explained a parable to His inquiring disciples. We could wish that He had explained all of the parables to us in the same way that He has those ones that He did explain. But Jesus has left us with a helpful guide to assist us in our interpretation. And though the pre precise meaning of some of the elements of the more difficult parables has been a matter of disagreement among interpreters, the, the overall meaning is generally agreed upon by conservative Bible teachers. But brethren, let us be encouraged. Jesus preached his parables, remember, to ordinary garden variety people like you and me. He intends that there are people that will understand them. So how do we rightly interpret parables? First of all, we rightly interpret parables by carefully regarding the meaning of Jesus' words in their historical context. We've got to put ourselves back into the sandals of first century Jews. We're not living in the first, we're living in the 21st century. We're not living in an agrarian world. We're living in a very uh, modern, business-oriented, um, mechanistic world. The basic tool for interpretation this basic tool is required to properly understand any part of Scripture, for that matter. But interpreting parables requires extra diligence. 
We discover the meaning of the elements of the parable by, by a careful study of the words as well as the images in light of the culture of the Bible. We've got to seek to transport ourselves back into the biblical time of the first century. And there are all kinds of outstanding tools that help us to do that. Bible encyclopedias and dictionaries and, and commentaries and Bible introductions, all of those things help us. Understanding the surrounding context is often the key to understanding the meaning of each part of the parable and then put together the parable's overall message. A failure here may lead us away from Jesus' meaning into fanciful, fanciful interpretations, and more on this in a moment. But notice further that Jesus' parables convey truth with an economy of words, and none of those words is without significance. How careful we must be to understand the meaning of those words and not read into those words, meaning that Jesus never intended. Understand, though, that we need not be experts in the original language or that we be seminary trained Bible scholars to understand the meaning of Jesus' parables. Yet we must labor, we must roll up our sleeves to interpret word pictures and to understand what Jesus' original hearers heard and understood, but has been lost to us over the centuries. We must be diligent students of the Word if we would rightly understand and benefit from Jesus' parables. Secondly, we rightly interpret the parables by discovering their main theme. What's the big picture? What's the main message here? Jesus' parables generally present a major theme. They give us one leading idea. And yet they may contain important subordinate themes that supplement and support the main lesson. This theme in many parables is some aspect of the kingdom of God. You probably got that in the reading of the first 30 verses of Matthew chapter 13. In other words, the central point is to urge us to carry out a particular duty or to warn us against some danger. All the elements of a parable's imagery serve to drive home its main point. So when you read the parable of the ten virgins, for instance, the main point is to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. And therefore we have to understand the symbols of the oil and, and the virgins and the lamps and the sleepiness and the midnight call in light of those things. In light of that one chief idea. I suggested earlier that we carefully avoid fanciful interpretations of the parables. You see, all of the details must be interpreted in light of the whole and not given a meaning independent of the overall thrust of the parable. Mr. Spurgeon humorously speaks of a commentator on the parables who, as he says, makes metaphors run on as many legs as a centipede. Well, we're not to look for all these legs and try to determine meanings, especially meanings that don't agree with the whole. In fact, all the legs on a centipede actually are running in the same direction, if you look at it. Look at them. I've seen a few in my basement, and that's true. 
One such teacher, in his exposition of the parable of the Good Samaritan, assigned a special meaning to every element, obscuring the single and simple message that we must love our neighbor as ourselves. Remember the saying that we may miss the forest for the trees, and we can do that with our interpretation of the parables. Another method of interpreting the Bible and the parables in particular was common in the early church, and then again in the Middle Ages it was resurrected. It's the fourfold allegorical interpretation. This method sees various levels of meaning behind the literal meaning. One dictionary gives this meaning, this definition. Allegorical interpretation of the Bible is an interpretive method that assumes that the Bible has various levels of meaning and tends to focus on the spiritual sense, which includes the allegorical sense, the moral sense, and the anagogical sense, as opposed to the literal sense. We allegorize when we go beyond the plain meaning of the text. Now, this is not to say that parables may illustrate other truths in the Word of God, but when we go beyond the simple intended meaning of the parable, we do we, we bleed off the thrust of the Lord's teaching. And at the very least, we blunt His force, if not missing its meaning entirely. Something else. Fanciful interpretations and disagreements between Christians about the meaning of God's Word has contributed to the criticism of non-Christians that we can make the Bible mean anything that we want. And this criticism has not always been without merit. Let us seek to know the mind of Christ in the parables, not only for our edification, but also to avoid needless controversy that insults our Lord and brings scandal upon the church. Thirdly, we rightly interpret parables as we learn lessons about God's kingdom. Many, if not most, of Christ's parables have as their overall theme some aspect of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, essentially, the kingdom of God is the sphere of salvation in which Christians are subject to Christ the King. The kingdom of God and the church of Jesus Christ intersect and overlap at various points, though the kingdom of God, as we shall see, is the broader concept. Various aspects of, the, of kingdom truth are like gems that are scattered throughout the parables. As we study the parables, we will know what the kingdom of God is, who are in the kingdom, how the kingdom grows, who are the enemies of the kingdom, what duties belong to those who are citizens in the kingdom, what dangers kingdom dwellers must avoid, and how to appreciate the fantastic blessings that belong to citizens of the kingdom of God. We will learn glorious things about the awesome ruler of the kingdom. He will teach us about his care of his beloved subjects and how we are to treat our fellow citizens in his kingdom. Further, we will discover sobering truths about our king's punishment of his and our enemies whom he will 
one day cast out of his kingdom into eternal fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. These and many other somber and glorious truths await us as we unearth in future studies our Lord's teaching. Our introductory study to the parables this morning, I fear, has been maybe more than a little dry and academic. So in our final moments, I would point out some requirements of a profitable consideration of the parables, and indeed, that would edify all in their study of all of the Word of God. Three things. First of all, you must be a careful, attentive hearer if you would properly understand and truly benefit from a study of the parables. Did we not read in Matthew 13 and verse 9, He who has ears, let him hear. Stand up, pay attention, listen carefully, Jesus is saying. So the question we have to ask ourselves, do I have ears? Do I have ears to hear the voice of Christ? Am I coming here to learn from Him? Or am I just going through the motion of hearing? I'm looking forward and looking at the pastor, but I've got all kinds of other things on my... Well, what was it that he just said? We can be that way, right? How important is it for you to hear Christ? How important is it to you for Him to give you ears to hear His voice? The parables, like any other portion of God's Word, do not readily yield their riches without diligent listening on our part. Plead with God to give you hearing ears and a hearing heart. Proverbs 2, verses 2 through 5. Make your ear attentive. See, our ears aren't necessarily attentive all the time, are they? He says, make your ear attentive. Screw that thing on. Bend it over. L listen to what's being said. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Our ears are attentive to a lot of foolish things. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, we usually cry for things that we think are important, that we need. If you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hid treasures, then you will discover the fear of the Lord and discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. In other words, we've got to We've got to get serious about listening. We can't do it in a half-hearted way. We've got to get both of our ears. It's been wisely said that God has given us two ears and one mouth, and we're to use them proportionately. We need to listen. Secondly, if you would properly understand and truly benefit from a study of the parables, you must first be a Christian. These words have meaning and practical application to those who are God's true people, those who are the citizens of the kingdom of God. You must first know the Lord if you would tru truly hear His word. You must have the Spirit of God if you would hear and benefit from the word of God. 
I go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. If we have not the spirit, we will not have the knowledge. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned, spiritually appraised, understood. You see, you must possess the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, if you would rightly understand and truly benefit from any teaching in the Bible. This book was inspired by the Holy Spirit. The men who wrote it were directed to, to write the very things that he would have them write in their own language and experience. But those very words were not inspired. But we need to be illumined by that same Spirit who is the Spirit of truth to understand those inspired things which are recorded in Holy Writ for us. Only Christians possess the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Romans, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. We need the Spirit of God to interpret these things for us. Thirdly and finally, if you would be a Christian, you must be born again. God above must give you eyes before you can see and enter his kingdom. John 3 and verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above or born of God, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You might understand abstractly certain things of the truth, but you're not wired by the possession of the Holy Spirit for those things to speak to your heart and your soul, things that can save you and conform you to the image of Christ. We must have eyes to see, and we will not have eyes to see unless we have the Spirit of God to open our eyes to see the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit must give you a new heart to love God and new eyes to see the kingdom of God and new ears to hear the word of God. We're not just here on an on some kind of Bible study. We're here to study God. We're here to study His truth. We're not just here to go through the motions. We want to meet God, don't we? We want to meet Him in His Word. We want to meet Him in Jesus' parables. Cry out to God to give you the new birth. See, Lord, I'm just a natural man. I don't understand these things. I want to understand them. I want to benefit from them. I want to be changed by the Word of God. 
plead with him to give you a new heart, new eyes, new ears. Lord, I don't have any, I don't, these things don't impact my heart. I don't see them. They're strange to my ears. Keep crying out to him like the blind beggar Bartimaeus who would not take no for an answer, but who would be heard for all of his crying. And you cry out to Jesus like Bartimaeus who meant business with Christ and he will hear you. He will answer you. He will give you a new heart. He'll give you new ears. He'll give you new eyes. And you'll enter the kingdom of God. And these things will be precious to you. Nothing less than that holy earnestness is called for by all that would hear and benefit from the preaching of the word of God and these parables that God willing will be considering in the future. Let's pray. Our Father, might we hear and respond to Jesus' statement, He who has ears, let him hear. And Lord, give us those ears that we might hear. Give us those ears that we might respond properly to the teaching of your word. Lord, so many things are stuck in our ears that keep us from hearing the voice of the shepherd. By your grace, clean out our ears so that we might not only hear every word, but every syllable of our Savior. For Lord, we're, we're trafficking in, in truth. Truth that determines a man or a woman or a child's eternal destiny. Might we hear so that we might live. And might we so live that we would continue to learn and more deeply love and more fervently follow and faithfully serve the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask these things in His blessed name. Amen.